From Arab Center, Washington, D.C., this is Five Questions. Welcome to Five Questions, a show where we unpack some of the big issues of the day, brought to you by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. I'm Yusuf Munair. In this episode, we will be talking about the economic and political crisis in Lebanon. Nearly a year ago, the world was shocked by news breaking out of Beirut. A massive explosion brought devastation to much of the city and taking with it many lives. What happened? What has happened since? We've seen an unprecedented political and economic crisis in Lebanon that has practically brought much of the country to a standstill. Joining me to take on five questions on this subject and help us break down what it all means is Dr. Munaharb. Munaharb is Professor of Urban Studies and Politics at the American University of Beirut, where she is also co-founder and research lead at the Beirut Urban Lab. Her research investigates governance and territoriality in context of contested sovereignty, urban activism, and oppositional politics and how people make collective life in fragmented cities. She's the author of several books uh, on Lebanon and governance uh, in the Arab world, uh, and the uh, co-editor of Refugees as City Makers. She also serves on various editorial boards focused on the region. Uh, I'm really excited to have Muna with us to talk about this issue. Muna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Yusuf. Well, let's let's start here. First, can you give us a sense of what day-to-day life is like in Lebanon today and how it's changed significantly in recent years? Yes, sure. A lot has changed. I mean, since 2019, almost uh, two, I mean, two years ago, we were in the streets chanting and trying to uh, change the political system and uh, ask for a different government that would uh, allow us to hope for uh, a more sustainable political change. And since then, um, everything changed on multiple levels. Um, Foremost, and maybe this is what people have been hearing about the most, is the economic crisis, which is a compounded crisis that includes a monetary crisis, a banking crisis, and a financial crisis. So the economic model of Lebanon, which was based on rent and uh, actually rent capture and extraction from tourism, hospitality, and services, but also from external capital flows that would come to it and on remittances from its very large diaspora, in addition to foreign aid that has been supporting its reconstruction after the civil war, but later on reforms that were never achieved, uh, all this, these capital flows were captured by an oligarchy that was very much interested in advancing its own interest and those of its allies in the banking and the private sector. So the, there was a collapse of this uh, rentier economy uh, through pretty much what has been qualified as a state-sponsored Ponzi scheme engineered by the central bank. And this has led to these crises I mentioned. 
And today, most of the Lebanese population, even its diaspora and many people who uh, place their money in Lebanese banks because of the secrecy law and their, uh, their regulations that uh, are uh, favorable to investors and to people placing their money here, including potential uh, people who are interested in the secrecy law, law and money laundering, uh, all these people are paying a hefty price of all these the strength capture and extraction, except, of course, for the ruling elite and their allies that are still in power and who found ways to, uh, to protect their own uh, uh, savings and, uh, and send their deposits abroad and protect them. And there are, uh, they've been working hard on reproducing their power in the sectarian political system of Lebanon and to maintain their, uh, their assets and their authority. Uh, meanwhile, people have lost their savings because of capital control laws that were informally imposed on the small and medium depositors overnight, the majority of the depositors. The Lebanese pound devalued to more than 80% of its value and it's depreciating uh, as we speak. Uh, enterprises, especially the small and the medium one, are closing down. We also had uh, a lot of big enterprises that chose to close down and to flee. Inflation is soaring. People are losing their jobs and getting more and more impoverished. So the situation is very dire at that level of uh, macroeconomy, I would say. Um, at the level of urban services and infrastructure, everything is collapsing, including people's plan Bs that they had put in place since the civil war and even in recent months trying to project the potential collapse. So people are uh, unable to pay rent. People are being ev evicted from their homes. Uh, there's no public electricity. Uh, the public water network is going to stop functioning very soon. We don't have fuel to uh, for the private generators to function. Uh, this is threatening the health sector, the education sector, and the whole economy as well. There's major shortage of medicine, and people are resorting to NGOs and solidarity and social networks and their families and friends abroad to send them medicine. We also have no gas to fill our cars and to and and to be able to move around. So we either have to queue in lines for hours or pay a very hefty price at the black market. So all in all, we uh, people are scared pretty much and they're living day, day to day in this uh, uncertainty and this insecurity. There are a lot of rumors and fake news multiplying every day. It's very difficult to plan anything. Uh, every day you need to troubleshoot a lot of problems that eat up your energy and your time. There's no horizon of any imminent change about this. Just feels like a free fall and there's no bottom in many ways. It's quite terrifying. And a lot of people are leaving or talking about leaving. And those who are staying pretty much feel hostage. I mean, that's, uh, that's uh, in some the situation. In parallel, you know, uh, people still try to find ways to uh, enjoy themselves and uh, go out either to walk along the Corniche in the cities or to the mountains, 
to try to uh, take some fresh breeze and uh, enjoy nature. Um, those who can afford it are still able to go out to the cafes and restaurants that remain open. We do have a new class of rich people, mainly those whose income is in what we're referring to as real money or fresh dollars. These are the employees of NGOs, INGOs and international organizations and firms. So that's, in a nutshell, uh, the situation here. Politically, I think we're going to talk about it a bit later, but uh, we're dealing with a major crisis of political confidence and deadlock. So maybe I'll stop at that. Yes, yes. No, thank you for that, Muna. The uh, really detailed breakdown of uh, the crisis today, which is... Um, very terrifying, as 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 you said, and I think, um, you know, uh, a situation that has been building certainly for uh, some time. I do want to ask you, uh, you know, this has obviously been, um, you know, several years uh, in uh, the making, even if it has uh, reached, um, you know, a, a new low today. It seemed like a, a major moment uh, almost a year ago as these crises were compounding, um, really uh, uh, dealt a um, painful blow uh, at the same time. And this is, of course, um, the uh, blast at the port, uh, which uh, rocked the city of, of Beirut uh, almost exactly a year ago, causing massive uh, devastation and loss. Um, I, I want to ask you about that first, you know, if you could maybe reflect on your own recollections of that day and also share with us um, how far has Beirut come since, uh, if at all, towards recovery and rebuilding? Yes, thank you for that question. So indeed, the the blast, which I always qualify as a criminal blast because it was a human-made disaster that very much epitomizes the decades of uh, callousness of uh, our repeated governments who could have avoided this, uh, this catastrophe that uh, took the lives of more than 200 and we don't even have an official count of the number of dead uh, the association of the victims of the blast placed it at 218 uh, and uh, 6,000 wounded. Um, there's a before and after August 4 for uh, most of the Lebanese, I would say. Uh, this was a day that will not be forgotten uh, given the enormousness of that explosion. I mean, it's, the it's equivalent to uh, the third um, a, a nuclear explosion equivalent in its strength. Uh, it comes third after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if I remember correctly the numbers, but without, I mean, needing to go back there because it is indeed traumatizing. Um, as we often talk about it when we discuss together that, you know, people who escaped death or uh, uh, being wounded are were really lucky. It was a matter of luck where you were on that evening. Um, it's, I mean, this this marked, I would say, the beginning of a new phase of relationship between the society and the state since. 
again for a for a group of people I'm connected to I would say I don't know how other people would would uh, experience that moment uh, people who would be on a different uh, political st- uh, spectrum of mine uh, from my positionality uh, you know what uh, what this scent is a very strong message of a state that couldn't care less about its citizens and their well-being. We sort of knew that, but the explosion materialized it in, uh, in very profound and traumatic ways. Um, as someone who works in urban, urbanism and urban policy, I'm, uh, I'm one of the founders of the Beirut Urban Lab at the American University of Beirut. And we have had many experiences in post-war uh, reconstruction and in urban recovery and in um, urban policy that, uh, that addresses situations of post-conflict. Uh, so we were pretty well place to try to address the aftermath of the blast and to try to support the process of reconstruction and recovery. So uh, we mobilized very quickly and managed to get uh, research funds to initiate a number of initiatives, research initiatives, but also urban intervention initiatives in uh, uh, several parts of the neighborhoods affected by the blast. Uh, Now, more generally, what I'd I can say about that reconstruction process is that this is a process that also reflects the political crisis we're in. This is not a process that is piloted by the municipality of Beirut like like one would expect it to be. It's a process that has been uh, entrusted to a unit of the army that was created for this end called the Beirut Forward Emergency Room. And uh, this was done most probably because the, the army was the public, I would say, agency that, had, that would be the most trustworthy vis-a-vis the international donor community who is going to fund the reconstruction and the recovery process. So, um, so we're talking about a, a process of reconstruction mainly, much more than recovery, that has been initiated predominantly by NGOs. And in an article I co-authored for ACW, we talked about the problems of this process of reconstruction uh, being being led by NGOs in relation to other uh, international examples well, where, you know, there's a threat of the process being hijacked and becoming a, re- a republic of NGOs. NGOs do not have the mandate to lead the reconstruction process. They have very different agendas and uh, they are accountable to different uh, sets of regulation than a public body who is who's supposedly entrusted with protecting the public good. Now, this is a real dilemma in the context of Lebanon because our public institutions uh, are not really public institutions that protect that public good. On the contrary, they're public institutions that have been extracting and capturing public resources and using them f- for the benefits of sectarian leaders that are in, that have hijacked these public institutions. So we are in a very challenging institutional setup where you, you have uh, where you need public institutions to be leading the process of reconstruction and recovery, but these public institutions have been delegitimized and they have lost the the, the trust of both people and the international community. So. Uh, 
still within that, I would say, very difficult architecture, we as an urban lab, we have been really pushing to try to find uh, champions within some public institutions, the, namely the municipality of Beirut, where we could maybe consider creating a city planning unit, which is absent from the municipality today, that could be staffed by urban activists, professionals, experts that have been mobilizing to advocate a more inclusive and diverse and just city for years now. We have a very active uh, uh, act, uh, act, uh, NGO and CSO sector in Lebanon. Uh, these are the people who uh, and the actors who mobilized in the aftermath of the blast and carried that responsibility of repair and reconstruction. And they have been recognized, I mean, their competencies have been recognized in a, in a structure that was put in place by the international community, the Lebanon Financing Facility, a trust fund that was created by the World Bank, the EU and UN agencies to channel international fund towards the implementation of what is referred to as the 3RF, the Reconstruction, Reform and Recovery Framework for Lebanon. So part of this institutional architecture uh, is uh, there's a consultative group formed that includes CSOs, civil society organizations, in a recognition of the important role they can play and that could offset the delegitimized de 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 sorry, public institutions. And we're trying to operate within that uh, uh, institution set, set up as, a, as the Beirut Urban Lab to try to I would say, re-enter the municipality of Beirut as a public institution as CSOs who have been working on urban uh, matters for uh, more than a decade now and try to uh, coordinate the process of recovery in a way that is integrated, that is embedded in an urban understanding of reconstruction that is not about physical reconstruction and that is also people-centered to respond to that, to the economic and social crisis I mentioned before because we need to prioritize people's need in this reconstruction and make sure that the people People who are the most vulnerable are being addressed in their needs immediately, not being sidelined and left behind. It's a real challenge to do that, but there's a lot of mobilization in this respect. Uh, although that, that there's a, a lot also of, uh, I would say, uh, uh, constraints and limitations in the work. Um, on that note, um... I want to ask you here about a related issue. We talked a little bit now about recovery and rebuilding, and you uh, pointed out the crisis of confidence in um, institutions that are, are involved um, and the importance of centering people uh, in this process. Um, but I, I want to ask you about progress towards justice for those who lost so much in these events um, and where the investigation process stands and how it might be connected to the political crisis as well. Yes, it's a very important question. Thank you. So uh, unfortunately, but also un unsurprisingly, there has been no progress with regard to justice and accountability after the blast. Up until today, there has been no indictment and obviously no trial against anyone. 
So uh, the process has been slow and it has been uh, uh, quite stalled. We had the first judge who was in charge of the investigation that was removed in February 2020, uh, sorry, 2021. And the second judge, the current judge, has announced uh, a few weeks ago a series of legal procedures against legislators, politicians and security chiefs uh, but they have all been protected by the existing uh, political structure and no uh, removal of immunities happened. So no one has responded to the request for questioning and uh, has responded to, to the judge uh, uh, demands. Uh, this has been countered by very strong protest, especially by uh, the victims' families uh, that have organized themselves in associations and they have organized protests and uh, and um, de- uh, visits to the to the homes of uh, the politicians who are protecting uh, these um, accused politicians uh, and they have been asking them to rem- to remove the immunity on these uh, accused people to no avail, really. So uh, so uh, the culture of in- impunity is very much still alive and is being reproduced. And uh, the lack of accountability is very much ingrained and it's a major challenge. Uh, people strongly feel that justice will not prevail and will not be served. Uh, although, you know, the victims of the blast who have organized in associations are really pushing hard to demand justice and, uh, and mobilizing in this respect. They're also mobilizing internationally to, to try to pressure the process uh, from abroad. Uh, they are organizing next week a series of marches and protests to to make their voices heard even louder and to pressure the Ministry of Interior to allow the judge to question the security officials he's protecting. And, uh, you know, uh, they are being supported by the political opposition groups as well. Uh, and they're also being repressed in their protest by the police who's uh, uh, utilizing uh, violence and tear gas to squash the protest. So this is the situation as far as uh, justice is concerned. Thank you uh, for that, Mona. Uh, I, I, I want to refocus on the political stalemate. Some will argue that you know this political stalemate is a product of uh, political differences between factions and party leaders that um, have been around for a very long time. Um, but I've heard others, and you certainly alluded to this yourself at, at the outset of our conversation, uh, that the stalemate is really a product of something of a tacit agreement among the leaders who um, prefer the status quo. What do you think about this? Uh, yes, this is a difficult question. I think it's probably a mix of both, you know, uh, readings. It's uh, 
I mean, this is the first time in Lebanon where we don't really have a status quo. It's not the first time we don't have a government, but usually during the moments where we didn't have a government, nobody really cared. Life would go on and people uh, would continue their everyday concerns. Now we're talking about a situation where we're in a free fall and really a downward fall that's Spiraling, spiraling us down every day. Every day is worse than the other in relation to everything that I explained earlier in the daily life of people, access to their basic needs, to their basic livelihoods that they cannot meet anymore. So resentment and anger is extremely high. And I'm not sure if the political leaders are able to sustain this much longer. It's actually quite paradoxical because on one hand, the devaluation helps them buy off services at a, and redistribute them as a, at a much uh, cheaper price. So they're able to uh, nurture their clientelistic network and buy off their clientele at a much cheaper rate. But uh, uh, it's not as uh, straightforward as one would think. Uh, people are also very angry at political leaders that uh, have uh, pushed the situation to reach this uh, dead end. And we're talking about a, a, a heterogeneous setup of political leaders. Not all of them have very strong ideologies, like, for instance, Hezbollah, who is able to maintain a strong base thanks to a very strong ideological, you know, uh, um, system that provides meanings to to uh, its uh, people. Uh, in other political groups, the, the ideology is much more tenuous and people who have no access to job and who are unable to find milk for their kids or buy uh, gas to go to work or, or fuel to secure electricity for their elderly parent who needs uh, an oxygen ventilator are less um, able to, to accept that uh, that daily collapse they're living. So it's not very easy to say that there's a status quo that's benefiting the political class. At the same time, uh, we also see that there is competition between them and that they're not able as before to ally on causes that matter to them. And we saw that, for instance, in the recent syndicate elections in the architects and engineers syndicate, where the political opposition list, the independent political opposition list, won by, by a landslide because the political establishment was unable to put together a common list. Typically in these venues, they would agree on a common list that where they would all come together despite their agreement. And uh, I thought that this was a very interesting situation where they couldn't even agree on a list for a syndicate. So the, this also shows that there are there is bickering and rivalry between them that is not allowing uh, allowing them to align. And uh, the international pressure on them, especially with the sanctions and the promise of or the threat of forthcoming sanctions from the EU uh, during the month of August is increasing that pressure on them. That this is how one could read the for the very quick formation, I mean, um, assignment or designation of the new uh, Prime Minister Najib Mikati, which happened in a, almost a, a record time of uh, designating him. Uh, 
perhaps as an attempt to try to send a positive message to the international community, because this political class now needs resources, financial resources to to um, to nurture its own system and to in, to ensure its reproduction. This is a political sectarian system that cannot operate if it doesn't have rent, as I said before. And now the, the coffers have completely dried up. So if they want to get more rent, they need to abide by the conditions required by the international community. And this is posing a real dilemma because they are in a situation where if they want to abide by the conditions of the international community and go to the IMF to get uh, uh, access to financial resources, they need to uh, to uh, operate a financial audit on the central bank, uh, where obviously, uh, if they audited, they're all going to be uh, held accountable. And given they have been all in business together in this business of corruption and the Ponzi scheme, they're all in a situation of, uh, of needing to protect each other so they don't all fall together. So in that sense, it's really hard to answer the, the question and to speculate. I think uh, uh, if we look at it from a, you know, really uh, from a political analysis perspective, it's a very interesting case. As a citizen, we're very much suffering this situation. But on the level of political analysis, uh, it's quite interesting to see if they will be able to reproduce themselves in creative ways, find ways to, to reproduce themselves in creative ways. They've been actually quite successful at that for for three decades. Yeah, it's, it seems like, um, you know, every once in a while you glance at Lebanese politics and uh, it's just uh, remarkable the staying power of some of these uh, individuals who seem like they've been on the political scene for as long as I could remember. Um, yeah. I, I want to I ask you here in, in closing... Muna, you have uh, described in great detail uh, a very grim um, economic situation, political situation, um, in which the political class is either, um, you know, reinforcing it through their um, abject ineptitude uh, at best, uh, and at worst, directly benefiting from uh, the continuance of it. Political opposition groups have been organizing for the past several years. Do you think they have a chance to win the next parliamentary elections scheduled uh, for uh, 2022? And could that possibly change the equation? Yeah, I mean, that would be the hope of many, but that would also mean that, you know, we believe in political change through elections, which is a very big question in political science, especially with the current functioning of the sectarian political system and the fact that the electoral law is gerrymandered in ways that allows the reproduction of the political system. And we've witnessed that in 2018, where uh, the political opposition groups did come together in one coalition, but they only managed to win one seat and the parliament made of 128 seats. Uh, now, Still, one needs to take stock of uh, the almost a decade of political organizing that has been happening in Lebanon and uh, that has led to a series of protests and mobilization and also the creation of a variety of political platforms, parties, movements, 
collectives, campaigns, a very rich, I would say, political opposition landscape that has been learning a lot from its mistakes and that has been also transforming into new novel institutional structures and new ways of organizing on the ground that are not always very similar, that could be also competitive among each other, and that often leads to the difficulty of having a unified opposition front. And we've seen that very clearly in the 2019 garbage, uh, sorry, 2019 uprising slash revolution, as some people refer to it, where uh, the opposition group was not able to come together as a whole. And some critics would uh, accuse that of being the the main reason for its um, um, for for the fact that it got discontinued. But I mean, such critics also forget that uh, the uprising was met with a lot of violent repression by the state police. And uh, this also played a major role in its uh, halting. Yet, I mean, since 2019 and the the pandemic in Lebanon started in February 2020, just as the uprising was taking new shapes and it was very much used by the sectarian political groups to to dismantle the the occupation of the squares that was uh, taking place in Beirut, Tripoli uh, and other cities and towns in Lebanon. So that's another story. But all this to say that the uprising, uh, the political opposition groups that the people witnessed during the uprising in 2019 continued their work on mobilization and organizing, and they have been quite active in um, uh, winning elections in professional unions. I mentioned the case of the uh, of the architects and engineers order of, uh, I mean, syndicate. They also won elections in the syndicate of the lawyers, and they have been winning also student elections, secular student club elections. So these are signals that there has, there are real organizational efforts on the ground that are taking place that might uh, materialize in uh, in uh, improved and uh, i would say more innovative and uh, more uh, robust uh, coalition for the parliamentary elections of 2022 that may lead the opposition to gain more seats yet at the end of the day it's just an issue of a few more seats they're not going to to win a majority in the parliament the the system through which the sectarian political setup structure in Lebanon is that, you know, you have sectarian quotas. So so if they want to win as a group, they're going to have a few seats on the table, which will play a role in the discussion of legislation and, and, this, and, um, and advocacy and lobbying. But if nothing changes at the top, this will be just, you know, these voices could be very easily co-opted or sidelined. And if these people have some ethics, they might end up resigning even if the overall machine of the sectarian oligarchy remains the same. So the it's uh, the I would say the elections are not an easy answer. My answer would be more about uh, you know recognizing uh, the efforts of these political opposition groups in organizing and and continuing the struggle. We have a very long journey for political change in Lebanon. It's not going to happen overnight. We have a systemic uh, problem. We have structural inequalities. 
and divides that have been created by the civil war that were never addressed properly. We never had transitional justice. We have core issues that are unresolved. We have a deeply entrenched corruption that has eviscerated public institutions. So we have a very long way to go to dismantle the system and to rebuild it. And it's not going to happen only through one round of elections, but through the organization of a political society at the neighborhoods level in various cities and towns. And this is what people are starting to work on and think of in their political organization. So, you know, we're pretty much people who are interested in political change and in struggle for social justice. This is, you know, the journey they're going to to have to uh, adopt this a very long journey that uh, that is not going to be just about election it's one episode among many other episodes of the struggle thank you so much for that and for that very detailed uh, breakdown of the current uh, crisis in Lebanon certainly there is uh, a long road and we will be uh, following the situation closely over time and uh, hopefully checking back uh, in with you in the future. Thank you very much for having me and for offering me that platform. Thank you for listening to Five Questions, a podcast by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast so you can receive announcements about upcoming episodes. Please visit our website, arabcenterdc.org, to learn more about our work and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.